All right, all you neurodivergent baddies out there, we are doing an episode on adopting intuitive eating for neurodivergent people. That's right. So if you've ever heard of intuitive eating, or if you haven't, totally cool. We're going to cover that today, what it is, what it's all about, why it's important, or maybe not important. And then if you ever read the book from Evelyn Triboli, who is like the mother of intuitive eating, really, so that book is great, first of all. Let me just say that. The book is great. However, it is not for all persons. And I mean, so many things out there aren't for all persons. We know this. We're woke over here, okay? And some of these things, especially if we're talking about like intuitive eating, the original intuitive eating book is very much coming from the sense of like you have all of the abilities to intuitively eat. So if that's like um, a person that's neurotypical, um, is maybe not like a stressed out person, has the financial resources or income in order to purchase the food that you want and sounds good and feels good for your body, um, the environment that you live in, your culture, um, the your upbringing, so many of the things. So today we're going to take a big step back in this conversation with intuitive eating and discuss it more under this light of what this looks like for a neurodivergent person. Ralph? Oh, he's in, he's going poop, I think. And he meows a lot when he's pooping. So (laughs) with that, let's get into the episode. Hey there, welcome to Hangry Thoughts, the podcast where we dish out on the best bites on intuitive eating nurture a healthy relationship with food, and of course, bust some nutrition myths, because fork diet culture. I'm your host, Abby Roberts, non-diet intuitive eating dietitian and an ADHD girly, here to guide you through a joyful journey towards feeling amazing in your own skin and enjoying all foods. Join me as we navigate the world of food with a fresh perspective where guilt-free nourishment and mindful eating take center stage. Together, we'll tackle the myths that may leave you feeling a little hangry or hungry for the real facts. So grab your fork, your favorite snack, and let's dive into the Hangry Thoughts podcast because it is time to embrace a vibrant, satisfying, and empowered approach to food and wellness. Okay, so I decided that I wanted to record this episode literally seconds ago, so (laughs) I'm just going to kind of fly by the seat of my pants while we talk about this topic. So I want to start off by discussing what intuitive eating is uh, and the 10 principles of it. This isn't exactly something that I like teach my clients. Like It's not like we like sit here and we go, okay, the 10 principles of intuitive eating. Instead, it's more of like, all right, we're going to kind of embed these into our conversations to Ralph, we're in the studio, sir. Oh, did you have a good poop? Oh my God, he has the zooms now. Um, But like, yeah, we'll embed this into our conversation and keep this as something where it's like we're staying curious with it. We're seeing where these things come up, our struggles and so on. So what is intuitive eating? Hello? There's like, Oh, there's a lady just letting her dog go into her driveway, and he has the cutest little yellow raincoat on. I love you, dog. Oh, he's so cute. 
Um, okay, what was I doing? <laughs> okay, intuitive eating is a process-based approach that ultimately teaches clients, people, how to have a healthy relationship with food, wherein clients become the expert of their own bodies. So you can see how this is very different than diet culture, where instead diet culture is going, this is what you should be doing, this is what you shouldn't be doing, we don't care about how you feel. Like this is, it. it's black and white here. So people are learning how to trust their ability to meet their needs, are able to distinguish between physical and emotional feelings, and then develop body wisdom. So you can probably already hear how this is very much like for the neurotypical person. Um, and again, this this isn't to say like this is only for um neurotypical people and neurodivergent people struggle with this, like many different groups of people can struggle with this or feel really aligned with it. But again, just for the purpose of this episode and so that this episode isn't a million hours long, uh, we're just focusing on neurodivergence. Yeah, right. So 10 principles here. The first one within like basic intuitive eating is reject the diet mentality. So as Evan, Evelyn Triboli kind of says in her book is that like we're throwing out the diet books and magazines that are offering this false hope of losing weight quickly, easily and permanently. So it's like even if we're allowing one small hope to linger that a new diet and better diet is possibly lurking around the corner, it's going to keep us from staying free to rediscover intuitive eating. And I don't really know about that. Like, I very much understand where she's coming from. And she, as the, the founder of Intuitive Eating, certainly knows what she's talking about. And I think that we could stretch this a little bit further. Now, as a registered dietitian, as a mental health provider, I don't necessarily think that the desire to diet or the desire to lose weight is bad. Um Although I am anti-diet, I'm not anti-human. So I very much understand why that desire is present. I very much understand that as a society, we fear fatness because we have been taught that our entire lives. Now, that is not based... Oh my God, cat. That is not based in any research that is not based in um, any statistics, any science. It is a lot of fear mongering. And it is, again, just this embedded belief that we've had in our society for decades. So it's really hard to unlearn that. And it's really hard to start to feel neutral or accepting in your body when it feels like the world is against you. So all of that to say, that when we come to that reject the what when we come to reject the diet mentality that first principle i really think that we can look at this one of two ways if we are someone that has spent majority of our life just engaging in diet culture deep in the trenches yeah that's going to be really fucking hard to completely reject that mentality if we're someone that's a little bit more of like, yeah, I've done a diet or so, um, maybe I live in a straight-sized body or thin body, I, I experience thin privilege, this might not be as difficult. So again, there's there's kind of a few camps here that we can look at. For the neurodivergent person, maybe the diet mentality means having structure and having that structure feels really nice and safe. So 
maybe rejecting the mentality, oh my God, I can't say that. Rejecting the diet mentality feels scary because it's, oh, I don't know if I'm not going to have that structure anymore, what that means for me or my routine, or if I'm going to fail my plan, blah, blah, blah. So the second one here, the second principle is honor your hunger. So again, from the intuitive eating book, this means that we're keeping our, oh my God, I don't know if you guys can hear Ralph, but he is just tearing up this house. He is like the loudest cat I have ever heard. Like he is not agile in the least. He just like, like thuds. (laughs) Okay. So honor your hunger. The book says that this is keeping your body biologically fed with adequate energy and carbohydrates. Otherwise, you can trigger a primal drive to overeat. So I'm going to stop there. Keeping our body biologically fed with adequate energy. Yes, this is important, right? Because we know that if we go periods of time without eating, this may trigger a binge because it's our body signaling to us, hey, I am really hungry. I need food. I need it now. And so it's going to trigger that drive to eat past maybe a comfortable level of hunger because it wants our body to be nourished. It maybe doesn't know the next time that we're going to give it adequate nutrition. We're going to feed it. The other part of this is keeping our body, bo- <laughs> our body biologically fed is important because again, with neurodivergence and especially like ADHD, for example, we can get really into whatever we're doing. Like we can become really focused on something, hyper fixated on it and time will fly by. And then all of a sudden we're like, shit, when was the last time I ate? Oh God. And like, then we start to notice those hunger signals when they're like starvation, it's severe hunger. So honoring your hunger can feel a little tricky with neurodivergence. It goes on to say that once you reach the moment of excessive hunger, all intentions of moderate conscious eating are fleeting and irrelevant. Now, this is also true, right? Think about it like this. If we have a hunger fullness scale, um, a one on that scale is going to be starving. Like we haven't eaten in hours um, or we maybe it's like noon and we didn't eat until like dinner yesterday. Um we're feeling that really growling stomach, maybe hunger pains, nausea, headache, hanger. And then a five on the hunger scale is we're neutral, neither hungry nor full, probably just uh, like 30 minutes, an hour following a meal, or like we just had a snack. And then a 10 is I am overly full. I am stuffed. This is like Thanksgiving dinner. And I had another piece of dessert, even though I was already full. And now I'm also feeling a little nauseous or side cramps and things like that. So again, it's very common for someone with neurodivergence to experience those extreme sides of hunger, especially if you're on medication that suppresses any hunger hormones like Adderall. Um, So this is also where that importance of consistent eating comes in and is something that I work on with my clients or at least just finding easy access to foods and how can we make food readily available. That doesn't mean that the food is expensive. That doesn't mean that the food has to be fresh. It's okay if it's processed. It's okay if it's in the pantry. It's okay if it's not organic. The importance here is can we get food into your system? Okay, 
Number three. So this is make peace with food. So Evelyn Tribbley says to call a truce and stop the food fight. So it's giving yourself this unconditional permission to eat. This is something that I share with all of my clients. Um, for others, it's it's tougher. Um, and this could be for a variety of reasons. And really what it comes down to is how is food talked about growing up? Is there that underlying feeling of I need to deserve food and at what capacity is that? What does that look like for you? Do you have a long history of dieting or eating disorders, disordered eating? All of these things are going to play a role in how we give ourselves that unconditional permission to eat food or if we don't give ourselves permission to eat certain foods. If you tell yourself that you cannot or should not have a particular food, this can lead to a lot of intense feelings of deprivation or guilt and can even trigger like stronger cravings. And that's a lot of the time where that feeling of like food addiction can come in. Now, I want to differentiate where food addiction is not real. We cannot be addicted to foods in the way that we can be addicted to drugs or alcohol, different substances, but the feeling of being addicted to food. That is certainly real. And so this is not to invalidate your experience within feeling addicted to food because that is very true. That is that is a very real feeling. However, a lot of the times when we have certain access to food, we have the ability or the permission to eat the foods that we're craving, um, it, it slowly starts to diminish that feeling of like, oh my God, this craving is so overpowering, overwhelming. I need this food now or else. So a lot of the times when we don't have permission and it's like we finally, quote unquote, give in to that food, our eating is experienced with such intensity and it usually results in that feeling of like, I overate and now I'm feeling really guilty or shame. The next one is challenge the food police. So this is like literally so many people on the internet. And like an example of this would be someone telling you to eat like X amount of calories per day. And it's like literally the amount of calories for like a fucking toddler. Like that would be something where you go, no, this is the food police. I'm challenging them. Or if someone on Instagram is like, only organic foods are good for you. If you eat anything else, that's so bad and unhealthy and you're going to die. No, (laughs) no. Like we challenge them and we go, literally, where did you get this information? What is your source? Do you have any references to back this up? Because I guarantee you they don't, or they just read like the abstract of the research article. And so sometimes we even have our own food police. If this is, you know, some inner voice in our head saying that this food is good, this food is bad, and we're feeling guilt with certain foods. We're kind of monitoring that voice in a sense, still with curiosity, compassion, non-judgment, but we're starting to realize like, oh, that's why when I eat chips, for example, I feel mentally bad afterwards. So as Evelyn Tripoli calls it, she says, chasing the food police away is a critical step in returning to intuitive eating. Now, I think that this is one um, that neurodivergent and neurotypical people can both do. Um, The process in that might just look a little bit 
different. Um, Sometimes for neurodivergent people, it's not necessarily like the food police that feels challenging. Maybe it's more of like the sensory of the food feels uncomfortable and overwhelming. And I don't want to eat that food because of the texture, the taste, the smell, the appearance of it. And so we would work with that really differently. We might stick with foods that are the same foods or safe foods, really whatever we feel comfortable in discussing. Um, And that would be, you know, if someone was like, hey, I don't like blueberries because every time I take a bite or grab a handful of them, there's some that are tart, there's some that are sweet, there's some that are mushy, there's some that like they're not ripe enough. And that is like too much texture and information for me. That feels like an information overload. Then maybe like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich feels safe because we know what to expect. We know how it tastes. We know the texture. So that would be a lot different than someone going, I don't like peanut butter and jelly sandwich because bread is bad, right? So different things work for different people. Duh. (laughs) Okay. Number five, respect your fullness. Okay. This is another one of those where it's like, yeah, all right. So listening for your body signals that tell you when you're no longer hungry. We're observing signs that are showing us when we're maybe comfortably full or we're starting to get hungry. And with an intuitive eating, this is when she asks us to like pause during our meal and ask like, how does the food taste? What is our current fullness level? And assessing these different things that are going on physically and mentally. That is not always realistic. I know personally, if I'm eating a meal, I don't really want to pause in the middle of it. I just want to keep on going. Um, Or even if I was practicing this, I might not think of doing that in the moment. So there's other different exercises that we can do to assess those levels of hunger and fullness. One of those is thinking about it in the way of like a hunger fullness scale, like we talked about on a scale of one to 10. One being starving, 10 being like, oh my God, I'm so stuffed. Sometimes that can help conceptualize these things. And a lot of the times when I'm working with someone that is neurodivergent, I try to describe it more so in this way of, hey, if we're looking at this on a hunger scale, do we notice when we're starting to feel hungry? Typically it's no, it's, I'm starving. I'm at a one, maybe a two on the scale. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I need to eat. So it's practicing either, okay, well, we need to be consistently eating so we're not reaching that severe level of hunger. Let's find some ways that we can build some meals and snacks into the day or some days and times where, or not days and times, just times throughout our day where we can assess, am I hungry? Am I full? What what might I be hungry for? or at least questions that feel realistic to this person. Okay, those are just some examples. Now, um, oh, where was I going to go with that? (laughs) Oh, buddy. Oh, so (laughs) when when you're um, assessing those levels of hunger or fullness, we're trying to aim for maybe a three or a four on that hunger scale, because this is giving us sufficient amount of time to think about, okay, what food do I have available? Do I want to make food at home? Do I have leftovers? Do I want to order something out? Did I bring lunch to work? Um, It's allowing us to think about, do I want something crunchy, chewy? Do I want 
more of like a soup or a sandwich? Do I want a casserole? Do I want pasta? You know, you can kind of go down the list of things that sound good for you and would feel physically or mentally pleasant. Um, Kind of in the sense of like what you're in the mood to eat or what you have the time to cook or prepare. Rather, if we're at a one or a two on the scale, this is more of like uh, we're flustered. We're like, oh my God, I I need food and I need it now. I'm just going to grab whatever's nearest to me. And that might not always feel as satisfying as if we had time to think about it. Okay. So this is where that consistency of eating comes back into play. Alrighty, we're halfway, we're halfway. Let's go to six. Discover the satisfaction, <laughs> discover the satisfaction factor. So this is kind of going off of our last one in uh, respecting our fullness. So um, as Evelyn Tribbley says in the book, she describes it as when you eat what you really want in an environment that's inviting and conducive, the pleasure you derive is a powerful force in helping you feel satisfied and content so that we can find that it takes less food to decide that we've had enough because that feeling of satisfaction and fullness happens quicker rather than, you know, if we're kind of scouring our pantry for whatever food we can find because we're so freaking hungry. Now, both of these ways of eating are neither good nor bad right? One of these could be a very normal experience for someone and the other could be a very normal eating experience for someone, okay? These are not bad ways of eating. The only time where I would go, hey, like if we're feeling uncomfortable with the way of eating where, you know, we're kind of like scavenging in the pantry for something or the fridge, we're feeling very, very hungry and this doesn't feel safe or this feels chaotic, this feels frustrating, shameful, Like, let's look at some different ways that we can feel more safe, feel more aligned, bring more of that compassion in. Maybe that's consistency with eating. Maybe that's something else, okay? There is no right or wrong answer for each person, right? Because we are all different. We all have different experiences with eating. We all have different lived experiences in general and with our bodies. So all of that matters when it comes to food, especially, okay? Now, number seven is honoring your feelings without using food. This one, eh. So as Evelyn Triboli says, find ways to comfort, nurture, distract, and resolve your issues without using food. So anxiety, loneliness, boredom, and anger are emotions that we all experience throughout life. And sometimes we use food to help quote unquote fix these feelings. And that's where I want to kind of take another route. That is kind of the key word, fix, right? As humans in this capitalistic society, we are in a fix it mentality, right? How many times have you heard someone go, well, we can fix that. Or we just need to fix how you're feeling. We just need to fix your work ethic. We just need to fix your determination. We just need to fix your discipline. Like that list goes on for ever. Now, as humans, you do not need fixing and your feelings and emotions sure as hell do not need fixing. Okay. You are not a problem to be solved. Okay. Rather, food is not going to quote unquote fix our feelings, but food can serve as a tool 
to help with emotions, to feel our feelings, or it can be to distract. It can be for comfort. It can be for enjoyment. It can be for hunger just because we're around it, the accessibility, whatever it may be, okay? You are allowed to use food out of emotion. That is not a bad thing. That is a normal part of eating. That is part of being human. But diet culture takes it on this other hand and it goes, nope, don't do that. Mm -mm -mm, That is not good. And so we kind of circle back to that challenging the food police and asking diet culture, why the fuck? Why, Why the fuck? Right? Like, why isn't that a good thing for me to do? I guarantee that there are other behaviors that are more harmful that we could be utilizing to quote unquote fix feelings, right? Food is not the enemy. Food is not the worst tool to use. Food can be really helpful to distract, to comfort, to nourish, and so much more. And again, Food is so much more than just fuel or energy. It can be used for culture, entertainment, connection, celebration, hunger, and feeling our feelings, distracting from our feelings. The other thing that I'll say on this one, then we'll move on to number eight, is food isn't always going to help with our emotions. And so, yes, there are times where we may turn to food to help kind of look for fixing an emotion and afterwards come out of that eating experience and go, ugh, I feel kind of worse than I did before. And that might be because we have that layer of guilt on it from eating because maybe we weren't hungry and we used it for our emotions. And so that's when we look into that and we go, okay, How can we kind of decipher some of this guilt and shame, build resilience to it, and then walk away feeling more in tune with our bodies, more respectful to our bodies, whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, remembering that food is more than fuel. Okay. All right. Three, three more. Number eight, respect your body. So The first thing that Evelyn Tribbley says in her little list is accept your genetic blueprint. Now, this actually goes back into last week's, no, two weeks ago, I don't know, a recent episode on this podcast where as as a person with like a shoe size eight, we would not expect to realistically squeeze into a size six, right? So why the hell do we do that with like our pant sizes, with our shirt sizes, Because as a society, we have been told that we need to be a certain size. Or on the other side, there are companies and um, designers and stores out there that do not carry certain sizes and they are not inclusive. Um, I just posted a reel um, about Aries' new campaign where they said that sexy is an energy, not a body type. And their whole like, mission vision statement is about inclusion and diverse body types and showing that in their work but then in their campaign in this picture all of the models were the exact same body type and it was even crazier because they were like literally all the same height too like there was literally no difference in weight shape size 
at all. Um, and then they also pulled um, XXL sizing. And I don't even think they had above that out of their stores. So no, they're not inclusive. And no, their mission statement is false. <laughs> so Again, if we go back to respecting our body, this can be really difficult for some of us because of the ways that society treats certain body types. Now, when I think about respecting your body, this is still something that every single human deserves. Respect. They deserve kindness, compassion, non-judgment. And when we're thinking about these different things that come up with diet culture or the shame that we feel, we're bringing curiosity to it. Right? We're not bringing judgment. When we respect our body, it can be sometimes a little bit easier to reject the diet mentality. I'm not saying that once we respect our body that everything changes and it's like poof, magic. Um, but maybe we can step out of unrealistic or overly critical thoughts, feelings, goals, that we have for ourselves or that diet culture has for us. Number nine, exercise and movement, feeling the difference. So rather than really militant exercise, exercise for punishment, doing it because we feel like we have to, doing it for caloric burning, we're rather focused on moving our body to feel physically or mentally pleasant. Or maybe we're doing it for our health. If this is someone that's neurodivergent, um, I also help teach different kind of self-soothing exercises that utilize movement with my clients. Because sometimes it's like, I have all of this energy and I don't know where to put it. So it's coming up as like anxiety or it's coming up as feeling really overwhelmed. So one example of that is like swaying back and forth and kind of putting all of your body weight onto one side or onto one foot and then kind of swaying back to the other side and doing that. Or maybe it's like dancing around your house. Maybe it's like flailing your fucking arms all over the place. <laughs> maybe you are going on a run or going to the gym, trying rock climbing, playing pickleball, playing tennis, um, doing dance, dance revolution. I don't know, but it's very different when exercise is something that you are doing for you rather than doing it because of the diet that you're on or because some fitness influencer on Instagram shamed you into moving your body. It's doing it for you and it's not doing for a calorie burning effect. Number 10, the last one, honor your health. So as Evelyn Tripoli says in this, she says, Make food choices that honor your health and taste buds while making you feel well. Remember that you do not have to eat a perfect diet to stay healthy. Progress, not perfection, is what counts. Okay, I'm going to add to this. Health is really dynamic, and there are hundreds and hundreds of determinants of health that go way outside of food, body weight, exercise, and so on. And so health is something that is really subjective. Each person is going to have different ideas of what health looks like or means to them. And so that is what we go back to is figuring out what that is for you. If that means um, you want a really good work-life balance, if that means you want to get together with your friends more consistently and have social time, or you want to have quality time with your partner or you want to watch TV at the end of the day and relax. You want to read more books. You want to 
do um, more plant care. You want to do your skincare in the morning. You want to blah, 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 blah. Okay. I think you get the point. <laughs> Stop rambling. Um, health is something where, again, each person is going to have their own say on what that looks like. And diet culture does not, even though they're going to tell you that they do, even though diet culture is going to say that this is what health looks like and it is a black and white situation. No, it is not at all. So I want to end this episode or at least like end this topic a little bit more with um, speaking closer to neurodivergent people. So this first one is that neurodivergent people might struggle with this interoception that we talk about a lot within intuitive eating. So examples like we talked about was honoring your hunger and feeling your fullness, right? Those two principles of intuitive eating. And they're commonly focused on in eating disorder treatment and recovery spaces. If you've ever been to a treatment center for an eating disorder, you may have heard the dietitians or the therapists talk about it. And again, for someone that's neurodivergent, that might be harmful, right? Because we don't have those internal cues or bodily sensations that include hunger and fullness. And it might be really difficult to tap into that. So this emphasis on only eating when hungry can result in neurodivergent people kind of delaying eating until we are so hungry that it's like, fuck, I'm starving, okay? And again, this focus on stopping when we're full might also cause neurodivergent people to really overthink and scrutinize, okay, what level of hungry am I at? Am I still full? What's happening here? What number on the scale am I? So to modify it, Again, maybe this is focusing on eating enough, eating consistently throughout the day. It's creating a list of snacks or meals that feel safe for you that we can kind of use as a grab and go situation. It's finding something that honors your body's unique ways of functioning and needs. This next one is that for a lot of people, including neurodivergent, emotional eating might be life-saving. Because again, there are some times where we go periods of time without eating or we're not eating enough food. And so we get to that point of I'm eating out of emotion or I binge ate. For many neurodivergent people, they are more susceptible to mood swings, irritability, difficulty concentrating, other mental health symptoms if we don't eat enough. So taking an energy can be an important way to regulate mood and emotional states. There is nothing wrong with recognizing this and responding to it by eating. If this is including more calorie-dense foods or sugary, starchy foods, that's okay. We don't have to just eat for hunger. It can also be for mental and emotional hunger. Um, the Let me see. I want to do two. Yeah, No, three more. Three more. I got three more. Okay. So this last one here, mindful eating, right? I'm sure so many of you have heard about mindful eating because it is all over the place on social media. Mindful eating can be really great in some instances and not super accessible in other instances. So this is another part of um, intuitive eating principles and the different exercises that Evelyn Tribbley will talk about in her book. But neurodivergent people might need more external stimulation to help themselves feel regulated. So eating without distractions might be really uncomfortable or even painful. So then 
I recommend to those clients, hey, we can eat with distraction. We can have the TV on. We can be scrolling on our phone. We can be talking to a friend. We can be stimming with a fidget toy. It doesn't matter. If that makes you feel safer, if that helps you to eat, then by all means, we can do that, right? There's no black and white here. We are doing what feels best for us or it feels safe for us. Okay, two more, even though I promised that like hours ago. (laughs) Okay, so some foods and forms of food preparation may be inaccessible to neurodivergent people. So this is a little bit more on the topic of sensory aversions right to particular types of food going back to like the blueberry example i found that one to be really common we might have barriers to cooking or other steps involved with food preparation this could be because of executive functioning attention or the sensory aspects of these processes as someone with adhd i suck at cooking because i can't for the life of me remember the task that i'm doing like i will be making food on the stove and then be like oh i need to clean up this part of the counter and then do that and go oh wait why is this out let me put that away and then do that and then go oh yeah i've had to respond to this person's text and then go do that and then go oh what's burning (laughs) oh shit oh i had something on the stove 10 minutes ago that i needed to take off 10 minutes ago (laughs) so for neurodivergent people the principle of making peace with food can certainly be adapted to focusing on more with making peace with food. What did I just say? Can be adapted to focusing on making peace with those foods that are more accessible and convenient. So if that is prepackaged foods like frozen dinners, instant meals, we can do that, right? Because there's no good or bad foods. We are not morally bad for eating less nutrient-dense foods or morally good for eating more nutrient-dense foods. And the last one, neurodivergent people may experience barriers to many forms of movement. So it's important to acknowledge this because executive functioning and attentional challenges may be really difficult to build any form of movement that requires sustained attention over a period of time. So that's where forms of play, activity can also come in. If that means we are, um, I don't know, I think I said like pickleball, tennis, playing like a a video game that requires maybe some movement, swaying back and forth, stretching, dancing around our living room. It doesn't matter. There are so many things that we can do. We can also do chores, right? Like that is also movement. Taking a walk is movement. So... The last piece, I'm going to say like the last one, like so many times then the episode's never going to end. All of these different modifications are not just applicable to neurodivergent people, okay? We don't need to have a specific diagnosis or neurotype in order to adapt intuitive eating to your needs, okay? I believe that You know, quality eating disorder care or disorder eating care involves exploring each person's unique challenges, cognitive style, and needs, navigating what recovery means to this person on this basis, rather than just doing a one-size-fits-all approach, because that never works, aka diet culture. (laughs) 
So I hope that this episode can help to kind of broaden this idea of what intuitive eating means. And that again, intuitive eating does not just have to be a one size fits all. And I encourage people to look at it as not a one size fits all. And looking more so at how we can adapt things for someone that's neurodivergent and we can find solutions, we can find care, we can find relief for you too in your ways of eating, body image, and movement. So that is all I have for the episode today. I feel like I talked a million miles per hour. I hope that you could follow me along into these podcasts and my word salad. But I will see you guys in the next episode. Bye.